The book of Haggai is all about priorities. Or more specifically, how much do you prioritize the presence of God in your life? There are some weeks where the message hits me a little bit different than other weeks, and this, this was one of those weeks. Uh, I felt a deep longing in my own soul to prioritize and, in fact, reprioritize seeking the presence of God as the central focus of my life. And so my hope, my prayer, is that by the end of this message, you'll be inspired to build your life around time in the Lord's presence. We've got a lot of work to do, so let me pray, and then we'll dive right in. God, thank you for your word. God, we long for your presence uh, to be thick in this place. Lord, as I look out, I, I know that the people here need to hear from you. They don't need to hear from me. And so, God, would you speak through your word? Would you speak through me or in spite of me, but would you speak and may we experience the beauty of your presence this morning together? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. You always do what you most want to do. You always do what you most want to do. That's, that's true, and it may not feel true, especially if you're stuck doing something where you're like, I don't really want to be here. Some of you, that might even be you this morning. But you always do what you most want to do, even if um, you don't want to be there. For instance, if um, sometimes you're here or you're at a particular place because you don't want to break a particular relationship, or because you don't want to lose your job, you show up at a work meeting, or because there might be a particular event for a class that you want to get a good grade in, you're there because the alternative to not being there is worse. And so you make a choice and you do, deep down, what you most want to do. One of the keys uh, to time management, that the sooner you learn this, the better off you will be, is that everything that you say yes to, you will inevitably be saying no to hundreds of other things. Every day, I wake up and, I'm, and I decide to not be an excellent guitar player. I do. I mean, I, mean, I can play the guitar okay, like slightly above the cringe factor. I got maybe 10 chords in my repertoire, but if a bar chord hits, you're going to know it, okay? Uh, but, but every day, I make both the conscious and sometimes the unconscious decision to not be very good at guitar. Do you know why? Because I don't practice. Or I don't practice very much. I spend my time doing other things. Let me give you another example. Let's say that um, you want to become a doctor. Now, if you want to become a doctor, there's a few factors that are at play in your life. One is that you need to have an above-average level of intelligence. That's a good thing, right? If you're going to the doctor, you want them to be smart. Second... You need to devote yourself to an incredibly lengthy process of education, on-the-job training, and then after all of that, you need someone to hire you to pay you to do it. And then third, in order to do all of those things, you will have to say no to thousands of things during that time so that you can devote yourself to being a doctor. You guys tracking with me? Everything you say yes to, you're saying no to something else. Why in the world are we talking about that? 
Because the prophetic book of Haggai is all about our priorities. What we say yes to and what we say no to. And God shows up to the prophet Haggai when the people of Israel have come back to the city of Jerusalem after the exile. And God tells them through Haggai, your priorities are all messed up. You value too highly living in nice homes and you don't value highly enough my presence with you. Or, in other words, my house, the temple, is in shambles, so I can't dwell in Jerusalem the way that I once did, but you live in nice houses. Your priorities are messed up. Just so you know, the book of Haggai is only two chapters long. You can read the entire thing in like five minutes, and it's structured through a series of four different prophetic messages that God speaks through Haggai. Four times we read the words, the word of the Lord came on such and such a date. So for our time together, we're actually just going to look at the first two of those prophetic messages. It'll be chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 9. So let's take a look. Haggai, chapter 1, verse 1. We read, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So of all the books in the Bible, we can actually be certain about the date that this actually occurred. On August 29th of 520 BC, God sends a message to the leaders of the rebuilding community in Jerusalem, to Zerubbabel, who was the descendant of King David, or the, the one who was supposed to be king, and to Joshua, the high priest of the people, the one who was to reestablish the priesthood at the temple. These two men are leading the rebuilding efforts among the people that are resettling the city of Jerusalem. They were rebuilding that, but symbolically, they were so much more as the descendant of David and the high priest. Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in pan your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. God's question to the people is this. Should you really be working on building fancier houses for yourself, for you to dwell in when my temple is still in ruins? Now, this is a rhetorical question. If you know anything about rhetorical questions, it's a question that doesn't as much ask a question that, as much as it makes a statement, right? God is saying, should you be building fancy houses for yourselves when my house is in shambles? And the answer, of course, is no. You should prioritize the rebuilding of the temple, God's house, rather than making your own houses fancy with paneled walls. They must have had HDTV back in that day, and Chip and Joanna had, had, had inspired them, and they're like, you know what? This house is missing shiplap. We need to put some up. Now, why would God feel this way? And is it fair for God to feel this way? What's really at stake? Is this about brick and stone or mortar or about something deeper? And shouldn't it be a priority for people to have houses to dwell in? Surely God wouldn't be, about, uh, be against that. Now, a little background information is helpful at this point. In 538 BC, King Cyrus, the Persian ruler who conquered the Babylonians, issues a decree that any of the people that were in exile because of Babylon's conquering are free to go home. 
So shortly after that, Zerubbabel, the descendant of David, and Joshua, the high priest, lead a group of about 50,000 people to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and reestablish being the people of God in the land. They go home, and they start the work immediately. And then the story happens, you might remember it from Ezra chapter 3 and 4. We looked at it last May in our thread series, but it dealt with these events. When the temple foundation is laid, the young people who are there and seeing it for the first time are shouting with joy. They are excited that God is going to dwell in this house. But if you remember the older people's response, the one who remembered Solomon's temple, what was their response? They shouted and wailed in grief because this was such a pitiful structure compared to what used to be there in the temple of Solomon. Well, after laying the foundation of the temple, there was some opposition to the rebuilding, and so they simply stopped the work. That was about 15 years before Haggai. Now, in 520 BC, about 15 years later, God raises up Haggai because it's almost as if they just got busy with other things. And the temple project, even though it had been started, was just sitting there. And it wasn't a priority to anybody. And so God gives this word through Haggai the prophet. He says, you are neglecting my house, and you've neglected it long enough. It isn't right that you're making your houses nicer and nicer, fancier and fancier, paneled houses, while my house sits in ruin. You can see why he's upset with their priorities. But you see, this isn't just about brick and mortar and God having a place in which to dwell. It's something much deeper than that. It's about God's people at this point in their history not valuing God's presence with them. It's about devaluing the very thing that makes them distinct as God's people. Yahweh dwells in our midst. He dwells with us in Jerusalem, in the temple, and we as his people can approach the very presence of God the Almighty by offering a sacrifice and going to the temple and drawing near to him through the sacrificial system. But what the people of Jerusalem are either intentionally or probably unintentionally saying is this. God living in a nicer house is more important to me than drawing near to your presence and worshiping you. Now, they almost assuredly would not have explicitly said that, but their actions are betraying the true desire of their heart. They'd rather have a fancy house than go and draw near to God in worship. Now, in response to this particular rhetorical question, God asks them to consider two things. Twice it says, consider your ways. Let me read verse 5 to 11. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Vivid picture, isn't it? Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts. Here's the answer. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil. 
on which the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. God says, ponder your current reality for a minute. It's not going well for you. You've planted a lot of seed, but you've gotten very little in your harvest. You eat and you drink, but you're never satisfied. You're never full. You're never satiated. You put on clothes, but you never get warm. Now, this isn't just because they live in Duluth, Minnesota. This is actually a warm climate. You guys know what I'm saying. Like, you put on clothes, but you're never warm, right? That's not their case. But here they are. They're, they're pursuing clothing and fine attire, but they're cold. You earn money or wages, but then put them in a purse that has holes in it. Can you imagine? I mean, just go through that exercise, right? Holes in it and the money, every, all the thing you put in just falls out. He says, you gather much, but even what you gather, the little that you gather is blown away by the wind. God invites his people to ponder, why is this happening? Why are you working so hard but never able to get ahead? And then he gives them the answer in verse 9. Because of my house that lies in ruin. Well, each of you busies himself with his own house. The reason that you haven't been prospering is because your priorities are all wrong. You value living in nice homes more than you value my presence with you. And so God has deliberately withheld his blessing in order to get the people's attention. You will not experience life, the life you're longing for, without my presence with you. In fact, God says, I've done all these things to get your attention. So what do the people do? What's their response? Well, we read in verses 12 through the end of the chapter. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. And on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. Now, if you've been tracking with us in the Thread Sermon series, this is actually quite shocking, isn't it? God calls them out for their sin. He says, your priorities are messed up. And what do they do? They obey. Like, they never do that. They haven't done that the whole story. They rarely respond rightly to the word of God, but here they are. They obey God. And so God promises in verse 13, I will be with you. I am with you in this. And then in verse 14, we see that God stirs up in their hearts so that it doesn't stop at just good desires, but they actually begin to obey. Zerubbabel and Joshua and the remnant of the people are stirred up, so they actually begin the work on September 21st, 520 BC, less than a month after God spoke the initial word. And if you've done any building projects, that's staggering, that timeline. That's not the end of the story. I mean, it kind of shocks us. We're like, God speaks a word, and they actually listen. What story am I reading here? This never goes this way. Chapter 2. This is the second word that God sends through Haggai. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, 
Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? God's aware of their emotion. He's aware of their feelings as they see that this temple is small and little and seemingly insignificant. And so what is God going to do? He's going to encourage them. Verse 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, son of Jehoshaphat, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. A month, less than a month into their obedience, into the rebuilding project, God shows up to encourage them. I know some of you are looking at this temple and you're discouraged, but don't be. And he gives them three reasons why. First, because I am with you. Work, for I am with you, he says in verse 4. And then in verse 5, and my spirit or my presence remains in your midst, so fear not. Second, he says, I have not forgotten the covenant that I made with you on Mount Sinai in verse 5. And so he says, even though you've been faithless to the covenant, I am faithful and I am remembering the promises that I made, so I am with you and I am for you. And third, in fact, not, not only this, but no longer will I withhold my prosperity and blessing from you, but I will pour out blessing on the land. The later glory will exceed it. I will give you peace, says the Lord of hosts. And to do this, he actually shakes down the other nations like he did with Egypt and the original founding of the people. And he shakes down creation itself in order to bless them. At the end, he says, I promise to give you peace. Now, I don't know if you noticed or not, but the, the name attributed to the Lord in the book of Haggai is this, the Lord of hosts, or literally, Yahweh of hosts. Yahweh is God's personal covenantal name that he uses with his people. It's a name of intimacy and a name that tells them something of his being, that I am and I'm with you. Of hosts is a military term indicating armies or, or power or military might. And so this Lord of hosts is used and it reminds the people that God is personal and God is powerful. God is their covenantal God and God is the commander of heaven's armies. So that if you read the New Living Translation, it calls it the Lord of heaven's armies. And that shows up 14 times in the book of Haggai. You think they needed to be reminded of God's personal nature and his power to them? In fact, this is the title that is used in most of the post-exile prophets in Haggai and in Zechariah and in Malachi. Ninety times this title, the Lord of hosts, is used. See, it brought great comfort to them to know who God was. He is Yahweh of the Lord's armies. 
and those armies don't lose. They needed to know this because they were a vulnerable people. They were not in control of their own land. They were there at the leisure and mercy of a conquering army, the Persians, and then later on the Greeks, and then after that the Romans. They were an oppressed people, and they needed to know that God was near and that God was powerful, and so we see that come to light. Now, the specific situation that God is dealing with in the book of Haggai is very culturally distant from us, isn't it? I mean, we're not living as Jewish people, at least most of us, waiting for the promised land and for God to restore our national fortunes. In fact, we don't even have a temple anymore because something greater has come. And so what in the world are we to do with this book of Haggai, a prophetic message to the people of God in 520 B.C.? See, in Haggai's day, the way to connect with the presence of God was to go to the temple, to offer a sacrifice, to say a prayer, to draw near to the holiness of God, even though you were separated from it. But the fact is, they hadn't built a new temple. And they show that drawing near to the presence of God wasn't all that important to them. But then they did. And they built the temple. And God's glory began to dwell there. But it was a pittance compared to the former glory that had come. 500 years later, something monumental regarding the presence of God on this earth would happen. God's glory would enter the world as a human baby. Jesus would come. And the author John of the gospel said, the word became flesh and tabernacled or dwelt among us. He revealed to us the glory of the only God, the Father, full of grace and truth. He dwelt among us in flesh and blood. He called disciples to follow him. He even said this about his body. Destroy this temple, and in three days, God will raise it up. You're welcome for the mute button. But then he also said something really fascinating. In his last few days with his disciples, he gathered them and he taught them and he told his disciples that in a little while he would leave so that another would come. The Holy Spirit. And not only that, but Jesus said, it's actually going to be way better for you for me to leave because then he will come. The Spirit will come. And 50 days after his resurrection, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit, the tangible presence of God on the world, came, and that changed everything. No longer was the temple of God needed, because we, the people of God, became the temple of the living God. God dwelt in our midst. He dwelt in us through the Spirit. And then as we gather together corporately as the people of Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in an even more unique and beautiful way. And so we no longer need to journey to Jerusalem to draw near to the temple, but can practice the presence of God in our lives every single day in some of the most mundane moments, making them sacred and beautiful and, dare I say, worshipful. This is what Jesus brought us. He brought us the presence of God. And that, my friends, is what life is about. That is what you really long for in your deepest longings. The longing underneath all of the longings that you have is that you would dwell with God. 
You might not know it, though. So what is Haggai not? It's not a book that's meant to be used whenever a church has a building campaign, although it's been used that way, and it makes me cringe. To prioritize giving to the church building or some silly nonsense like that, that would be a horrible misuse of the text, wouldn't it? That would actually be attributing that God is saying something that God is maybe not actually saying. Nor is this to be a moralistic sermon that simply states, if you just get your priorities right, then God will pour out his blessing on you. See, as Christians, God does pour his blessing into our life, but it's on the basis of what Jesus has done, not on the basis of what we do. And as much as we would like to reduce God's blessing to a formula, if I do this, then God gives me this. If I do this, then God gives me this. That's not how God works. That's not the operating system that exists in our life. It is not law or wages that we earn, but rather his unmerited grace and favor poured out into our lives through his presence. And so while many would take Haggai and simply apply it like this, if you just prioritize God and his presence in your life, then he will bless you and you will have all kinds of prosperity. That's not a responsible way to apply the passage in light of the gospel. It's almost true, which means that it's untrue. So rather than earning wages that God somehow doles out based on our faithfulness, picture it this way. When we prioritize the presence of God, we do experience God's blessing, but not in a way that receives wages for work well done, but more like a child getting to go on vacation with their dad. His presence with us and our joy together in communing with him is the greatest reward. See, in the gospel, God gives us God. We get to connect with the divine. We get to know the one who spoke this world and the galaxies into being that God condescends to dwell with us. And that's the good news of the gospel. It's not Jesus forgives my sins so that I can get X, Y, and Z. It's that Jesus forgives my sins so that I can commune with God. So that his, his presence is a priority and, and place in my life. I get to dwell with him so that it can take everyday mundane moments and turn them into something sacred and beautiful. And to reduce the gospel to, to God simply doing this so that we can have something else is a misunderstanding of the very good news that we preach. It turns something that God made into an idol and Jesus into an idol giver. But what you really desire is him. That's the good news, that we get to delight in relationship with God because of the good news of Jesus reconciling us, Jesus cleansing us so that a holy God will approach even though we are sinful people. Now, in light of that, the book of Haggai does call us to consider our priorities, and it forces us to ask, how do we value the presence of God in our own life? How do I prioritize the things of God in my life. And that's where things get challenging, don't they, my friends? I can honestly tell you as your pastor who observes a lot of lives, many of our priorities as a people are so out of whack with the kingdom of God. Not trying to get on a soapbox here, 
But if we actually wrestled with the fact that we do what we most want to do, or we do what we value the most, the truth about many of our lives reveals priorities that would shock us. How we spend our time, how we pursue our careers, the place and the weight that we give to our family, technology and entertainment, youth sports. If we actually saw these things mapped out in a pie chart for our lives, it would shock us. Now, I made the strategic decision in this message to not teach the entire book of Haggai, but just this so that I could tease out the implications and talk with you pastorally about our priorities in life. The reason I'm doing that, because I think one of the biggest battles that we are facing right now is to seek to not lose our souls. I'm not being overdramatic, but I do want to convey the seriousness of the crisis that we are facing, the crisis for our very souls, the souls of our children and the heart of people. We live in a world that is characterized by hurry, by hustle, by productivity, by success, by comfort. And these things often drive our lives more than we would like. And they crowd out the presence of the Lord in our lives more than we would like to admit. Corey Tenboom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. I read a book on my sabbatical by a pastor named John Mark Comer last summer. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and I found it to be an incredibly good and challenging read. In fact, if you were to read a book this year, I would commend that one to you, because it deals with one of the deep sicknesses of our culture and our, our world, much of which we're not even aware of. Like a fish when asked about the water, who says, what water? Both sin and busyness have the exact same effect. They cut off your connection to God, to other people, and even to your own soul. The solution to an overbusy life is not more time. We're all given the same amount of time. It's to slow down and simplify our lives around what really matters. He writes, ultimately, nothing in this life apart from God can satisfy our desires. Tragically, we continue to chase after our desires ad infinitum. The result, a chronic state of restlessness or worse, angst, anger, anxiety, disillusionment, depression, all of which lead to a life of hurry, a life of busyness, overload, shopping, materialism, careerism, a life of more, which in turn makes us even more restless, and the cycle spins out of control. What if instead you were created to bask in the presence of God and to commune with him? What if God's rebuke through the prophet Haggai to the people of Israel is the exact rebuke we need, just in a different sphere? What if God is saying to us this morning, what really matters in your life is a priority placed on my presence with you? That should be your highest priority. And like any priority that we say yes to, that means that we have to then begin to say no to other things. See, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. Just because you can do something good doesn't mean that it's your best yes to do that particular good. We must think through the implications of our choices. Everything I say yes to is something that I say no to. And I'm not going to tell you or, or, or tell you what to say, but I do want to ask you, are you okay with your yeses and with your noes? 
Do your yeses and nos reflect your actual values, or are you being catechized by the world? Now, don't hear in this a charge to not do anything hard or demanding. When it comes to, let's think about our career, for instance. You may love medicine, but do you like working 60 hours a week? Do you love going to school for eight years, plus another three to seven years of residency, depending on what field of medicine you pursue, where you work 70 to 90 hours a week during that training, only to put in crazy hours after that? To do that, you need to say no to a lot of things, don't you? But who wants to live in a world without doctors? I don't. Or let's say you want to start a business. Great. Do you know that most small business owners average 50 to 60 hours a week? And then there's this ongoing dread and sense that they never get to turn it off. Now, I'm glad that we have business owners. Many of you are business owners, and many of you are employed by those who've started their own businesses. But to say yes to that pathway is to say no to a lot of other things, like paid vacation and clocking out. Or maybe you want to have kids someday. That's a 24-7 job if ever there was one. There's little to no pay, no annual reviews, and very few thank yous from the ones who receive your services every day. To say yes to being a stay-at-home parent is to say no to a lot of things like paychecks, regular encouragement, tangible feedback, and on and on it goes. And yet, all of us are sitting here because of the investment of parents, probably or we're employed by a small business, or we want to live in a comp- uh, or want to work at a company that has a good, healthy culture, or when we are sick, we want to go to the doctor. I'm not telling you what to do or to not do hard things, but what I want you to see is that you need to set priorities for your life and how much of your life is built around the daily priority of experiencing the presence of God. Brothers and sisters, what makes us distinct as God's people is that we live with God. Our aim is to abide in him because the scriptures tell us apart from him, we can do nothing. Now, that's not nothing in that we're absolutely worthless apart from his presence, but nothing of spiritual value or eternal significance is done in our life apart from our connection to Jesus, the true vine. So, brother, sister, Consider your ways this morning. You spend your mornings and evenings endlessly scrolling, but still finding yourself both restless and bored. You strive and strive at work, but still feel empty inside. You get the best grades possible in class, but still feel a deep insecurity gnawing at your soul. You made the all-conference team, but no one's going to care in five years. You've been promoted five times in the last eight years, and yet still you feel insignificant. Why? You take vacations that people 200 years ago would have only dreamed about, and yet rest feels more elusive than it ever has. Guys, I don't fire out these examples from a high and lofty position. of Having it all figured out, I don't. In fact, this sermon has caused me in many ways to think through my life and my priorities. And there's a deep conviction on my own soul that some things need to change in my life right now. Now, I don't think I'm a phone junkie, but technology has an entirely too big of grasp on my life.
I need some boundaries around this thing, some rules in my life that will help me prioritize the presence of God. I need to be more present in moments of life, more engaged in things that make life deep and rich and beautiful. Because what my soul truly craves, what it longs for, the presence of the Lord, that device won't give me an unhurried soul, a deep and abiding joy. Now, guys, there, there's all kinds of research everywhere that tells us this is destroying our life as much as it's helping our lives. For most of the apps, you are not the consumer. You are the product. Meaning, there are really, really smart people and artificial intelligence that learns your behaviors and manipulates you so that they can keep your attention longer and longer and longer. That's how it works. And you know what? I'm aware of it, and it still works on me. I guarantee you it's working on you in some way. Now, it may not be your phone. It may be your job that demands way too much and gives very little. It may be a good desire to have your kids in sports, and all of a sudden you realize we haven't eaten dinner together as a family for four weeks we haven't been to church because every stinking weekend we're in a tournament. And these people who run the leagues demand more and more while promising less and less. And at some point we have to say, wait a second. What is life about? Now, don't get me wrong. I like sports. I did them all the way through college. But at some point we got to stop and say, what am I prioritizing? And what is shaping and forming my soul? Like, oh, Pastor Kyle started meddling. No, I'm a parent. I'm trying to figure it out. But you know what I do know? We live in one of the most anxious, depressed, broken cultures that has ever existed. And we have more than we need. So what are we going to do? Are we simply going to passively give our culture the yeses and say, you know what, that's what everybody else does, I'm going to do it. Or are we going to counterculturally fight to be the people of God that prioritizes the presence of God as the very central focus of our lives, and the question then becomes not, is it permissible for me to do, but rather, is it good for my soul? And you know what your kids need? They need your soul to be healthy and your priorities to be in line because they will do what you do more than they do what you say. Guys, I don't have all the answers. I'm not coming from a high and lofty position, but I am saying our world and our culture right now is broken and we way too passively say, sure, that's what everybody else does. We don't have a temple to build. Praise the Lord. We have something far better but we do have the presence of God in our lives. And most of us are completely oblivious to it because we're entertaining ourselves to death. So my question that I want to leave you with today is, where do your priorities need to change? Not to earn God's favor. You have that in Jesus. But to actually experience the reward of knowing God, which is God. Let me pray for you and me. God, we need your help.
we take an honest look and assessment at our lives and we see that there are some things that are way out of whack. And God, we just want to repent of those things. Lord, we are shaped and formed so much by a device in our pocket or by the values of somebody else rather than the values of your word and the enjoyment of being with you. Lord, I pray that out of this, you would protect us from any kind of weird legalism, but that you would create in all of us a hunger for more of your presence, a thirst that's actually quenched when we spend time with you. God, to land this message in our hearts, I can't do it, but your spirit promises to be with us, can. And so Lord, I pray that you wouldn't take an inspirational thought or conviction and, and let it do nothing in our actual everyday lives, but that this would be a day where you plant a flag in the ground and where we prioritize your presence in our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us access to God. It's in your name we pray, amen.